language, identity, place, home. These are all of a piece, just different elements of belonging and not belonging, of resisting and embracing the void. you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 202 of Embrace the Void, where our identities move from liquid to gas. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are bringing the philosophy to the politics. So let's identify some stuff. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Corvus, the host of Corvus Corax podcast. Corvus, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I'm glad we could finally get you over here. I was on your show a while back. Uh, you ran me through my enlightening round paces and whatnot. Um, and I'm glad that we've, we found a topic for us to chat about over on here as well. Yeah, I, I wanted to do this for a long time, but I just didn't know what would be the best topic and i think i picked a good one for today yeah i think it's great and i think it'll be really fun to work through and i know you're dealing with sort of english as second language issues and i can't even do this stuff in english as a first language so totally sympathetic there i also want to mention at the beginning here we're going to kind of skip the usual like background discussion because you prefer to remain anonymous for doxing reason concerns um so we'll just kind of you know, jump right into the philosophy side of things. So your work, right, you focus on the law of identity. Um, and here, I think you're talking about sort of the law in the logical sense, rather than I think in the yes, sense yes, that yes. a lot of folks commonly have in mind. Do you want to start by just like explaining to our largely probably non-logic-y uh, experienced audience um, what the law of identity is and why it's important? Yeah, sure. So the law of identity is a basic concept in logic. The idea behind it is basically that each thing is identical with itself. So A is equal to A. A is standing mm -hmm. for a variable, and that variable is always itself and never something else. So that's the basic idea behind it. And generally, uh, people think it's important because if you dismiss the law of identity, everything you say can mean everything else, uh, anything else, you lose grip uh, on reality kind of mm. if you lose identity 
Yeah, so this seems like one of those, isn't this an incredibly trivial kind of claim? Do you feel like, you know, it is just kind of trivially true that like A equals A? Or uh, why is why is there any tension over this particular topic? Mm, I think it's uh, really trivial, but I also think that the trivial topics are sometimes the most important because you just dismiss them as uh, something that's uh, self-explanatory and move on without uh, thinking about what is the basis for your thought. Mm -hmm. So if you, for example, and we'll get there uh, later on, uh, take a look, for example, on uh, right-wing political theoreticians, uh, like Ayn Rand, for example, uh, they try to base their uh, uh, philosophy or political ideology uh, on mm -hmm. the basis of the law of identity. And mm -hmm. uh, I think one needs to take those things seriously. Today, there's a lot of talk about identity politics. And mm -hmm. uh, first you think, well, uh, identity politics means, you know, people talking about uh, transphobia or racism. But what they say and what they mean are two different things. Mm -hmm. And it's also the same. What they say is what they mean. So they talk about identity politics by talking about something else, but also by talking about the politics of identity. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, let's try to unpack that there a little bit because I think yeah. what is what is cool about what you're doing is you're taking this sort of axiomatic, um, logical concept like the law of identity and then trying to explain the relationship between it and what we commonly think of as like identity politics. And it is tricky because like it, there seems to be some connection there, but it's not quite clear what it is. And you mentioned Rand. So let's talk about Rand a little bit here. I mean, like my understanding. So, so uh, you, you mentioned that Rand claims that sort of all the evils of the world is generated through someone dismissing the law of identity. And there we mean it in this kind of logical sense. Now, my understanding is Rand is not super great on basic logic, um, but you say this is something that we should take seriously as a, a claim. So what does that mean to like take this seriously and like why, why does it matter in this way? Yeah, okay. So first I'd like to start with a quote from Ayn Rand because that shows how serious she at least takes the topic, mm -hmm. uh, if that's okay for you. Sure. So in Atlas Shrugged, she writes, uh, whatever you choose to consider, be it an object, an attitude, or an action, the law of identity remains the same. A leaf cannot be a stone at the same time. It cannot be red and green at the same time. It cannot freeze and burn at the same time. Are you seeking to know what is wrong with the world? All the disasters that have wrecked your world came from your leader's attempt to evade the fact that A is A. All the secret evil you dread to face within you and all the pain you have ever endured came from your own attempt to evade the fact that A is A. The purpose of those who taught you to evade it was to make you forget that man is man. And that's where I land the quote. Uh, the last part, man is man, is also something that nowadays comes up in uh, discussions around identity politics and I sure. think that that's something we can talk about later but um, well one of the reasons that I take it seriously is because Ayn Rand takes it seriously and also a lot of people 
on the one hand, the people who like Ayn Rand and also people mm -hmm. who don't know about her but follow the everyday, everyday predominant ideology that is uh, the mm -hmm. neoliberal capitalist ideology, which takes a few things from Ayn Rand. Uh, and I think that also should be taken seriously. For example, uh, Donald Trump said that Ayn Rand was uh, one of his favorite authors. Implying yeah. that he has yeah. read a book. Yes, yes, sure. Yeah. Uh, right, uh, one of his favorite people that he's heard referenced by people who he likes. Yeah, but I think there's something there because, uh, for example, I don't know if you remember it, um, mm -hmm. when a reporter asked him about the uh, gigantic amount of corona deaths, Trump's reaction mm. was, it is what it is. And mm. people were outraged by that. But what is there to be outraged? He's just invoking the law of identity. It is what it is. Isn't that obvious? So what's okay, going on so there? Yeah, so let's let's dive in there a little bit because so this idea that uh, you know your government is trying to get you to reject the idea of identity this sort of rings to me as very similar to when folks constantly quote 1984 and specifically yeah, that yeah, passage yeah. about you know they will make you force you to believe that the basic truths are not the basic truths so, and this seems like more more than just a claim that we have a de we have fundamental debates about what things are identical to what other things which i think is is true like we do have those kinds of debates in our politics um but this is going beyond that and suggesting that the way that some people are engaging in this political activity is a kind of mental you know magic or reverse psychology or something like that that's meant to unmoor individuals from like these basic principles um what like do you think that that is a claim that we should take seriously or do you think that it's worth like just noticing that that claim comes up a lot in a lot of this kind of reactionary politics i think we should take it in so far seriously as i think that you can never really break apart ontology from politics so i think hmm. both are always uh, in some sense connected mm-hmm so, like, another example that comes to mind here was, um, I, I think it was, I always get the Weinsteins confused, but I think <laughs> this was an Ericism where he was talking about how, and this was, I think, was related to the 2 plus 2 equals 4 debate on Twitter, or 2 plus 2 equals 5, depending on who you ask, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and he was saying that the goal was to explode the law of non-contradiction or something like that, right? And thereby... Um, you know, like prime everyone's minds to accept all sorts of inconsistent claims. Do you feel like that's the same neighborhood of like what what you're getting at here when you're trying to address this identity debate? Um, yes, it's it's a part of that because I think, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was one of the ideas I wanted to um, promote through uh, this talk. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's it seems like kind of a meme, but I think there's something behind it. A, a kind of political spectrum based on the uh, position you take concerning the law of identity. For example, there are the uh, right-wing libertarians who think that A equals A and they don't really have to do something because reality uh, will come after those who disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Because or as Eric put it right, if you genuinely try to identify as a hawk, uh, you will not last very long. 
Yeah. And mm-hmm. then there are the uh, right-wing authoritarians who kind of guess that there's something not completely right with that, so they need to enforce the identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a confusion. That's like an interesting issue that I feel like I see throughout the like Evo psych, pop pop Evo psych, I should say, and yeah, yeah. like race realism world where there is simultaneously these very confident claims that there are these largely immutable biological differences, but also that it's really important that we reinforce them through Western civilization or the whole thing might crumble in an instant. Yeah. So you just feel like that's just, they're just, um, you know, are they just being inconsistent there? Or do you think it's sort of, is it more like an Aristotelian idea where they think that we are this way by nature, but also have to be made, way, made this way by habit or something? Well, I think they believe that um, everything is a product of nature, you know, so on this socio-biological mm-hmm. level. Um, sure, I think it's a contradiction, but that not, that's not really a problem. You know, every ideology mm-hmm. has its contradictions. Just ironic, given that they're accusing other people of contradiction through the violation of identity laws. Yeah, yeah, but contradiction is just mm-hmm. a, a universal notion. I'd say contradiction mm-hmm. is universality in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can take a step back and look at the origins of the debate behind the law of identity. Just for yeah, a I, was, I wanted to ask you about that because you also, I think, mentioned you kind of put Rand in contrast with folks like Deleuze and Hegel and Lacan. Yeah. Um, so, like, what, you know, for, for people who just, you know, n- like normal human beings who think that A <laughs> equals A, right? What even is the debate, first of all? And, like, what yeah. are the ranges of positions that people take on that? Yeah. So, so we go back uh, a bit uh, to uh, the ancient <laughs> Greeks. Ancient Greeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know, a, f- a few days back, um, mm. we go back to Heraclitus, mm-hmm. uh, because he was at least, my boy, as far as I'm aware, the first one in the Western canon, at least, who encountered this paradox of ontological stasis. So uh, most people know uh, a sentence from Heraclitus through Plato's simplification. You cannot mm-hmm. uh, enter the same river twice. Uh, when you look at the fragments that we have from what he has written, it's a little bit more complex. He says there is something like, uh, you can and cannot at the same time enter the same river. So you have mm. identity and difference at the same time. It's very Buddhist sounding the way it's phrased, right? It's one yeah. of those like, lemma contradictions. Yeah. And... Uh, that's that's kind of the the origin of the debate and nowadays you have on the right side Ayn Rand I mean you have also other people like uh, Carl Schmidt and so on but Ayn Rand I think is uh, okay. a little bit easier to work with or to explain what it's about um, and on the left side you have uh, people like uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari or Jacques uh, Lacan and with the Jacques Lacan you have also the uh, New Hegelians, I'd like to say, you know, Slavoj Zizek and and those uh, people. Your critical race theorists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when it comes to uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, I don't want to go too deep into it because I don't want to make it too confusing. But I'd like That's to appreciated. talk. Even yeah. the names are confusing to me. So. 
Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, a concept that is important mm -hmm. in this concept, uh, context, and that is uh, the assemblage. So when we are dealing with an individual, we are never, never simply dealing with an individual. An A is never just an A. The individual mm -hmm. is always already an expression of an assemblage of a non-totalizable intense multiplicity. That sounds confusing. So what does this mean? An no, it sounds very, very good to yeah. me as a Buddhist, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's a dense causal nexus. I'm with yeah, you. Let's go. I, I think you'll, you'll have uh, a lot of points here where you, you'll probably agree from a Buddhist standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, so an assemblage is a composition of functions, machines, and a or multiple semiotic sim, uh, systems. Different mm -hmm. multiplicities come together and form something. Through this assemblage, the multiplicities act together. They are driven by intensities. So intensities are particulars that are neither tangible nor have a proper name. And that's why it's so hard to grasp the concept of uh, intensities. Hmm. Um, intensities are excitations of mind and body. They set us in motion emotionally, spiritually, or libidinally. But they defy a final symbolization. Effect and becoming are two examples of uh, intensities. In other words, intensities are desire in its pure state. You know, like uh, Kant talked about the... Uh, Reine Vernunft, uh, pure uh, judgment. Uh -huh. Okay. They lack specificity. They are just the form, not the content. Okay. So just just to downshift some of that a little bit, this is kind of the continental version of, you know, we experience the world as being a bunch of separate, discrete entities, but rather, I mean, or, or, or like we, we, not even we experience, right? We abstract and conceptualize the world as these separate discrete A's and B's and such. But the reality is there's this really messy complex and, you know, clearly defining where the A is or something like that becomes very difficult. Is that sort of the rough and tumble idea here? Yeah, I think a, a good example to uh, make it a little bit easier to grasp uh, would be mm -hmm. a biblical one. Um, the Tower of Babel, you know, mm, uh -huh. The uh, multiplicity of languages is the product of the inherent failure of the one language. So maybe that example helps a little bit to grasp uh, that inconsistency itself is not a bug, but a feature of Can you, can, yeah, can you unpack that a little bit more? I'm not sure I understand how that how that, lead, how that gets us to this sort of ontology, this messy ontology yeah. rather so, than the nice, neat one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the assemblage is the one, you know, everything packed together, mm -hmm. uh, but it has to be inconsistent because it's always something lacking, because every, um, you can imagine it as a multi-layer ontology. A thing is not just existent on one layer, there are multiple layers mm -hmm. that make up this one thing and you can never close the system every level of the layer is a thing in and of itself that works and every level works together to uh, produce the thing that you identify as the one so this is kind of like a, a sort of non-reductive 
holism, right? So if we're talking about an, a human being, for example, right, it's both true that you're like a collection of, of determined physical particles, but also you're this weird chemical, biological, messy thing, and you're also this weirdly emergent conscious entity on top of that. Yeah, so it's it's uh, just like a holism, but with mm -hmm. a lack. So you you're always missing something. Why why are you always missing something? Is that just fundamental to the nature of the universe or something? Um, I'd say so. So the thing is, if you have if you have a structure that is static and closed, uh, mm -hmm. that would mean that the thing can never change. Uh, you can think of uh, Zeno's paradox. You know, the okay. arrow paradox. Mm -hmm. um, someone shoots an arrow, and if you would stop the time and just take out one single frame of the movement, you have a single frame. And that would, so uh, a uh, infinitesimal uh, small time frame. Mm -hmm. If movement, uh, uh, let's say it in a different way, movement would be impossible if mm -hmm. reality is produced simply by putting uh, unmovable moments next to each other. So okay. you can so, never, so, yeah. yeah, there can never be stasis. It's, it's always a becoming, not a so being. This is, right, so this is sort of reminiscent of like, if the universe was perfect, that perfection would involve being sort of permanent and unchanging. Um, and so for a, for a universe to be changing, it has to not be perfect in whatever we mean by that kind of sense yeah. this is often i think comes up in like religion and contrast between like your perfect uh, eternal unchanging god that somehow seems to interact with an imperfect sort of evolving uh flawed universe yeah Similar, that's yeah. also that's also something mm -hmm. that you can uh, take uh or transfer to the political debates around um mm -hmm. uh, the analysis of power systems so oh, yeah. uh yeah um, I was thinking about that yeah so bring it bring, bring it back around there it's great yeah so uh some people on the left mainly people who have a i'd say a flawed uh, grasp of critical theory or uh, foucault um hmm. they try to paint a world where everything is um penetrated by power everything is interpolated by ideology uh, there's mm. no place from which we can uh, hide or try to break free you know cat capitalism is everywhere and so on but mm -hmm. that that can't be true for example um a problem of the classical feminist idea of socialization is uh, mm -hmm. you hear a lot of uh, Turfs arguing that people who are uh, uh, brought up as male can't be female um, mm -hmm. because their socialization was f designed for a male person. But that would also mean that they themselves, these feminists, can't be feminists because our ideology obviously wouldn't want feminists to exist. So there, mm -hmm. there must be some lack, some something not fundamentally... Uh, working, being able to capture the subject. Mm -hmm. So it's always so, you have always those um, objective circumstances, but the question is always how you subjectivize those objective circumstances. 
Right. So this this sort of relates back, I feel like, to a conversation I just had recently with one of the left of Phil folks about agency and the like, the way that understanding about social dynamics um, sort of balances these sort of concepts like hegemony where you have absolute or, or you know, not, not absolute, but like overwhelming control over culture or something like that with the continued existence of sort of resistance and uh, cultural production that like conflicts with that dominant paradigm. So essentially, right, basically, you know, if if everything were really as absolutely controlled in the way that like some folks might have in mind, you wouldn't see any change, right? It wouldn't be possible for people to buck that system, but we see people yeah. bucking the system. And so there must be some room for agency there. Is that sort of where we're yeah. at here with this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's, there's also a, a, a um, discussion between um, Adorno and Walter Benjamin because um, Walter Benjamin, for example, was a fan of Disney movies. Mm. <laughs> and as, as one might Speaking know... Speaking of hegemony. Yeah, yeah Ad- Adorno <laughs> really wasn't a fan of uh, Disney or movies in anything, general. Anything yeah. fun. Right. And th- there's, uh, I don't know if you know this connection, there's a, a big anthology called Theory and Criticism. I think it's um, uh, I think from, it from Northern Press, a, a ginormous book. Uh, and there's... Um, an essay by Walter Benjamin and the new edition um, was edited by Adorno after Benjamin died. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of changes. And one of the changes was that Adorno deleted the part where Walter Benjamin talked positively about um, Disney movies uh, or, or just movies uh, in general. Because Adorno thought... Uh, that this um, culture industry tells you how you have to interpret whatever you see. It uh, interpolates you with their ideology. And Walter Benjamin was well, like, no, you, you can interpret the movie. The viewer also is an active part of this reception. That's a really great point and deeply meaningful and also hilarious to me because yeah. it highlights how much academic philosophy even right even like frankfurt school was just a bunch of guys flaming each other about yeah. like, cultural commentary stuff <laughs> like marvel Definitely. is terrible it was like the marvel is terrible yeah. of their time essentially yeah. um so yeah let, let, yeah go ahead yeah, no no sorry <laughs> continue no i just wanted to, I wanted to bring it back a little bit to the metaphysics stuff here and the ontology yeah. stuff because i think there's another layer here that is of interest to me about the left right paradigm and how it is defined by questions about ontology and metaphysics and such there's a sort of common claim and i'm not sure how much this has been borne out in um studies or not but there's this sort of impression that one difference between the left and the right is that the right prefers neat structured universe right wants a fairly ordered universe wants one that is you know like we all want one that is just but like tends to be more likely to believe that we have a just and ordered universe on a you know uh religious level if not on a you know real world kind of level um but also tends to believe that like we are more just as societies than we actually are um whereas the left seems more open to like messy ontologies and fuzziness and imprecision um and and like you know, not, not not bad in precision, but like a recognition of the inability to be precise about certain parts of the universe. Um, I'm curious if you feel like that is true in your experiences of 
sort of these different political positions that are taken by these different philosophers um, and what you make of that? Is that just like a fundamental difference in human beings that pulls them apart politically in these ways? Uh, no, I, I think um, uh, so. Yes, uh, I, I would agree that mm -hmm. uh, there's a fundamental difference uh, between the right and the left, especially how they conceptualized reality. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't say that, for example, someone on the left like uh, Deleuze or me or whoever uh, doesn't experience the same emotions that the uh, right-wing people do uh, when it comes to this. For example, identity is a, a really big topic uh, when it comes to this. So um, the question is, I personally am not a, a fan of identity. And a lot of people are confused when I say this, because they mm -hmm. think identity and subjectivity are the same thing. But uh, from mm -hmm. the point of psychoanalysis, there's a big difference. So subjectivity is itself a question. It's the questions, who am I? Uh, it's the question, who am I? And identity is the answer to the question, what am I? So identity is a collection of given markers and categories. And we all need an identity to be able to communi communicate with each other. It's part of the mm -hmm. symbolic order. That's how it's called in the Lacanian lingo. Um, mm -hmm. But there's a difference between having an identity and grounding your being on that identity. And I think mm -hmm. that's what the right does and what feels right for them, because it does feel good. Um, identity works through exclusivity. So I have my identity. Everything, everyone else has a different identity. That's a good thing. Um, and if someone else suffers because of their identity, my identity seems to be the better identity. So I have an, a certain enjoyment through the suffering of someone else. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, that's the reason why, uh, identity politics and I, I claim something that, uh, some people may not uh, understand when uh, or uh, want to agree with identity politics is um, right-wing politics per se so it's it's the essential element of right-wing politics to me and i know that might mm. be confusing because when you look at the history the term identity politics came from a um, uh, black women so a black mm -hmm. feminist collective in the 1977 but what they wanted to do was anti-identity politics they just choose a bad term um, politics based on the given that is given through the social order that's conservative because you are doing politics through particulars in my opinion what makes left-wing politics left-wing is that they are trying uh, to achieve a universalist politics, some emancipation. For example, if you take a look at uh, why the kitchen was a room of contention uh, for, for politics for a long time, it's not because women were mm -hmm. in the kitchen, it's because it was a place of exclusion. Mm-hmm. 
So okay, there's a lot there, um, and I think so. First of all, the first part reminded me again, once again, of Buddhism and the idea of like what, what they call gra the grasping without attachment kind of approach to living in the world, right? Where it's yeah, and this is like this is I think something that Buddhism genuinely struggles with and doesn't have a perfect answer for, which is like you were saying, we need identity, um, but we want to have it in this kind of very loose way where we have it, but don't like hook our ego up to it a bunch such that when our identity needs to shift we don't have an existential crisis or we don't have as much of an existential crisis by by allowing that change um to occur and so it seems like what you're saying is you know and i think this this makes a lot of sense when you look at modern conservatism that modern conservatism is built on the preservation of an identity that is attached to a specific you know, sometimes fictional historic um, period and a desire to try to reclaim that kind of identity, or at least, if nothing else, prevent further erosion of that identity by the, the you know, progress or multiculturalism or all these sorts of things. Um, and then I guess on the flip side, no, I mean, I, I do think it, it's we should, we should recognize that, like, there are folks on the left who are doing very deeply attached identity politics and there's there's even i think an argument to be had about like is it is it the case that communities that have been denied an identity should be encouraged to develop their identity in a more robust way than like you know communities that have long had their identity you know centered in our conversations for example so do you feel like it is it is the case that like there's a difference there's a balancing act that has to be done in these different communities between the need to bring people together around an identity but also not get them so attached to it that they can't progress yeah so the first thing is that i would actually disagree uh with the proposition that there are on the left people who do identity politics and um, mm. for ex uh, for example we can take a look at Black Lives Matter um, mm -hmm. a lot of people say that Black Lives Matter is identity politics, even some leftists say that Black Lives Matter is identity politics but when they say it they mean it in a positive way what I say to that is that it's not about the particular identity it's a universality that is uh, that you identify with through the non-belonging. So, for example, mm. one of the uh, most used slogans was I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. Through this slogan, you identify yourself with the victim of police brutality. On the other hand, All Lives Matter uh, sounds universal but isn't. The reason for that is that All Lives Matter thinks you get to universality by collecting every single particular. But universality is the lack, the non-all, the non-belonging, those who are outside. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So this is, um, it reminds me a lot of like the social death stuff that you see from like Orlando Patterson, where the... The problem is the individuals are necropower from Mbembe or something, right? The problem is that the individual, there's a group of individuals who are being excluded, who are being prevented from having an identity, right? From having um, status in the community or in society or something like that. Um, and so the attention has to be, and so then it, it, then it seems like the, you know, I can't breathe slogan or something like that is an attempt to, 
take individuals who are not currently sort of um, in that state of social death and have them be identifying themselves with the people who are, I guess, hopefully, as where the goal is to try to break down the distinction between them, right, and encourage sort of the removal of that sort of state of social death. Does that feel like it's similar to where you're, what you're getting at here? Yeah. So um, there was one point where I wanted to comment on. Mm-hmm. It's about... Um, being part of the social whole, mm-hmm. so um, or, or the social in general. So, um, a lot of, or I think, I think the general um, liberal reaction to uh, oppressed people or excluded people is to try to integrate them into the power structure, mm-hmm. but. A lot of the people who are the oppressed don't want to be part of the power structure. They want to change the power structure. Right. You hear uh, nowadays, especially this month, Pride Month, you know, a lot of queer people, myself included, uh, react uh, by saying, no, we don't want to be part of this. We want to change this. And that's the same what uh, what BLM wanted with uh, defund the police. No, we don't mm-hmm. want to be part of the police. We don't want to be represented inside of the police we want to change the uh, policing system mm-hmm. yeah good so let's talk about this some the, the kind of real world implications for these differing approaches so you know obviously the pushback there is going to be you can't change the system from the outside right that there's no levers of power that you have access to if you're not part of these systems how do you how do you address that objection do you feel like yeah so that's exactly uh, why i think it's um important to don't forget the lack of power structure so that which is missing there is no real outside because you are always inside of it you are just mm-hmm. not inscribed into it um, so you are always inside of it. There is no outside. No one is outside of it. But there is a phantasma, um, the ideological idea of you being outside of it. Okay. So what does that mean, though, in terms of, you know, take the example of, of reforming the police or something like that. What are we looking to do here? Do you mean that, like, instead of having you know, uh, Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine running things <laughs> who's, you know, gay, right? You want, like, what? No police or, like, fewer police and more services being done by, you know, not gun-carrying individuals? How do you, how do you sort of see that? And, and do you see the, the, the method of getting there to be largely kind of electoral in nature if you're not able to do it by sort of putting people in the hierarchy? Yeah, and that's the point where it gets really complicated because I think there is... <laughs> yeah, <fair enough. laughs> uh, because, I, yeah, if I had the solution, I would just give you the 10-point sure, plan and then I'm, we'd, I'm just we'd finish to solve at Thursday. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, so I think uh, the best answer would be do everything. Okay. Why just choose a single strategy? There are some people that are good uh, with the um, walk through the institutions, uh, and there are other people who are better at um, agitating on the street. Why choose mm-hmm. a single one of them? Mm-hmm. 
So you yeah, I'm, just, I'm certainly sympathetic to that. So yeah, you yeah, I, was, I was just curious. Need, yeah. I, I think the first thing that needs to be done is, uh, and that's something that kind of is starting, I think, uh, to be done. It's consciousness raising and trying to develop a different form of desire. Because even if you have a revolution, uh, what happens the day after? That's the biggest mm. problem. A, yep. Creating a revolution isn't isn't that hard. You just need like what ten percent of the population. You need just like uh, you need someone on your side that's um, uh, that has access to uh, to um, power, to internet, mm -hmm. to food, and if you have the basics that everyone needs to live, you control the country. So it's, mm -hmm. it's not that hard, technically speaking. But even yeah, technically, but right. uh, even if you achieve that, what will you do the next day? And to create a future that actually differs from what we do now, day to day, you need to create different forms of desires. For example, what I don't understand is why a lot of leftists, especially the ones that are engaged in politics, uh, mm -hmm. don't try to evoke desire as much as right-wingers do. Right-wingers always talk about the desire of the people. And obviously, it's not the real desire of the people, but by uh, saying it and always reminding them that this is really their desire, they are creating it. So mm. why not just go there and, for example, talk about technically we could have, what, six hours work days or three-hour work days. We could reduce the number of days that we can work um, and that's just for this country. You could uh, further mm -hmm. the development in other countries and uh, help their struggle. There are so many things that you can do, but you have to evoke the desire in the people to do so. And for that, you have to um, create a, and that's a really capitalist term, but I think it's work. it works here really well. You have to create some form of incentive but not financially, but on a mm -hmm. level of desire so that mm -hmm. you yourself are involved with it. Do you feel like, what do you feel like are the factors that m create the asymmetry between the right's ability to capitalize on desire and the left? Cause I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to this. You know, I'm like my potential explanations. I would look towards things like, you know, is it an asymmetry about what emotions they're evoking that it's just easier to evoke? <laughs> anger fear and resistance than it is to evoke you know a, a motivational hope that is actually effective um or is it that like because their goals are easier in that their goals are largely resist change rather than create it does that mean that it's just you know it's easier to get there from an emotional place than it is to get to functioning civil society from an emotional place yeah so i i think i would agree with that um the reason for that is that right now we have a lot of people and i know that uh, sounds like i'm pathologizing which i'm kind of doing but i think it's still correct um a lot of people mm -hmm. are in a mode of the subjectivity that is really close to paranoia mm -hmm. and that means that they need something some form of explanation that fills the gap in mm -hmm. the symbolic order, in the social. So uh, things don't go like they're supposed to. 
for ex the the best example is Corona. Mm. Everything. Uh, a lot of people thought, "Wow, the state that's that's this big thing that controls everything, and if you do something wrong, they know it." And now mm. you see them all fail horribly. They're all failing horribly, and the only way you can reconcile this with this form of idea of the state that you had before that is mm -hmm. by saying that there's some form of conspiracy behind that absolutely and there are there are a lot of historical reasons and uh, socio-cultural reasons for why paranoia is step by step becoming more and more prominent um, there's a lot we could talk about when it comes to the internet uh, on that level mm -hmm. i think there's a lot that's not really um thought about enough for example something that i think that would be really interesting to look into but not that many people have done this is um how subjectivity is generated because back in the day mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh, in the last century and mm -hmm. before that uh, there was something lacan called it the mirror st stage so you through the mirror you recognized your body is um something that is put together um, through body parts that are attached together. You first get a picture of yourself through the mirror. You never know how mm. you really look like. You only know how you look like through mirrors, through photos and so on. And you also had your mother or your father next to you who gave a emotional response to you seeing yourself the first time in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And also you had your family and people close to you through which you learned the language that you use and we always we are technically uh, a system that expresses itself through its language so we don't really uh, as the um, ego of apperception as Kant calls it you know the transparent ego the self that mm -hmm. can talk about itself we can't exist in this sense outside of language. But nowadays, this whole process is often uh, really on a technological level. Children see themselves in the reflection of a smartphone uh, for the first time, and they learn language through uh, through mm -hmm. a computer or through video games. Uh, I myself learned, for example, my first English words through Pokemon. <laughs> oh, there you so, go. Ironic that yeah. you'd be learning it from a Japanese game, but yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's, that's something that, uh, one maybe needs to consider a little bit more when it comes to genealogy of subjectivity in our everyday life nowadays. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great point. And it ties to a lot of the stuff that I've been working on with conspiracy theories, like the rise of, of internet conspiracism and the way that it is tied to personal identities. And especially what you were saying there about like the way that it serves a function of maintaining a narrative of closure, like you're, you know, where there is an explanation for all of this chaos and the explanation ends up being the Jews or someone, you know, yeah, for close enough to look like the Jews that, right, enough people and can get on board. Yeah. The, th the thing about this is it's something that is called the signifier without a signified. So, Uh, you can say it's the Jews, but you can also say, no, no, uh, my neighbor is a Jew and I like him, but it's mm -hmm. the Jews, because there is no mm -hmm. concrete object that the Jews refers to. Well, it's, unless it's you're just the, name. it's the lizard people who are within the Jews, right? But yeah, yeah, but, but I, then I, it's I, just I totally the lizard people. Saying. 
Right. No, not, like, it's, it's my neighbor's just a person, and he's a great guy. So yeah. like. It's, it's not, it's all, not all, all of them. Table. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, th that's called in, in psychoanalytic terms uh, a fetishistic disavowal. You say, mm. no, that's not what I'm talking about. For example, a lot of people uh, make fun of uh, Greta Thunberg um, mm. and, and then uh, say, but no, no, I believe in climate change and so on. No, you don't believe in climate change. Mm -hmm. you, you use this to uh, cool yourself down, to relax. You know, you are not one of those people. Uh, but at the same time, you can enjoy uh, being one of those people. Yeah, I think you see this a lot in like colorblind politics discourse as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely, and it's definitely. Like, and and the like the resistance to the history stuff to me does feel a lot like you know people genuinely want to believe that the world is either either moving towards just or you know like if not always kind of just. And to do that, you have to retcon a lot of what happened in the past several hundred years and sort of either say it didn't happen or it happened for acceptable reasons and then we got better or something like that um yeah, and, and if, you, if you don't adopt those things there is this really scary kind of existential pushback to you know oh well you're saying that everything is horrible and terrible and can't improve in any kind of way this kind of it's either things are neat and tidy or it's nihilism right yeah um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and th there's also this thing uh, I know you know about it, uh, privilege theory. You know, check your privilege, privileges, mm -hmm. and so on. I think the general notion behind it um, goes in the right direction, but I think what would be way more important is check your fantasies. You know, mm -hmm. fantasy structure, how we relate to reality, and mm -hmm. how our enjoyment is generated. So, if you, for example, um, enjoy racist uh, comedy but not for uh, the contradiction in whatever is shown, but for the racism, uh, maybe mm -hmm. you should check your fantasy. Even if you think you're not a racist, there might be more uh, to or consider. We might, we might use the word narrative here if we were trying to be a little more neutral, right? Fantasy has got a condescending tone to uh, it. No, 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 no. I, I mean fa fantasy in a, in a purely psycho uh, psychoanalytic sense, so it's not... No, I know, but not, I mean most people don't know It's not about illusions. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's right. not what about I'm saying illusions. is when you're, when you're yeah. downshifting for other people, maybe don't call their, their worldview a fantasy <laughs> if you want to try to convey anything else to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that yeah, that's really interesting. Um, are there any other, like sort of major sort of political implications you feel like for these kinds of identity debates. I think you mentioned trans issues before. I think it's pretty clear in the ways in which, um, you know, debates over, you know, w trans women or women or something like that is a version of what you're describing here. Was there anything else you wanted to kind of add in that neighborhood? Um, I don't know if there's something, uh, left that's really important uh, at least when it uh -huh. comes to the topic of identity politics um, do you have any other thoughts about how we want to sort of engage so i mean like if we're in our current situation right and like yeah. a large portion of the population is heavily captured into this really toxic narrative and identity do you have a sense of how you unwind that situation or are you sort of here with the rest of us just sort of staring into the the maw and having no idea how we're going to break out of the spiral yeah well there the, there are a lot of things that uh, need to be uh, done and looked at um 
Well, maybe there's one thing that I could add to um, the topic of uh, trans, mm-hmm. trans, uh, trans discourse uh, in quotation marks um, from the queer side, because when you take a look at Twitter, a lot of people are discussing about which flag means what and uh, what is bisexuality, what is pansexuality, uh, is it really important that they are two different things and so on. Um, and mm-hmm. also the, the discussion around uh, LGBTQ. A lot of people mm-hmm. prefer LGBTQ AI+. I think the most important part is the plus because it's about identity and identity is always evolving mm-hmm. and therefore you need something that symbolizes that there is always more. Mm-hmm. It's so, always an open, uh, open yeah. gestalt in that kind it's, of way. It's, it's, Actually, I have to say, uh, it's way easier in English than in German because in German you have <laughs> uh, three genders. So uh, in in English you just have the, but in German you have der, die, das for male, mm-hmm. female, and neutral, and you mm-hmm. also have suffixes for words which decide which genders is. So, for example, if I say you are a podcaster, that could mean you have every gender available. But in German, podcaster would just be the male version, version because we say, no, the male is the generic gender. It, it contains every gender, but we just say the mm-hmm. male way. If you want to single out females, you would have to say podcasterin. Huh. So it, well, it gets is... way more complicated and annoying. That's funny. <laughs> be- yeah, it's funny because, uh, like, in certainly at least the woke, uh, but also I think broadly sort of mainstream journalism, for example, in America, you see the weeding out of terms like actress, right? Yeah. Like actor is now being applied to men and women in an attempt to try to sort of move <laughs> away from, even further away from some of the gendered assumptions around particular yeah, I, I, activities. I can tell you that will get you to the discussions that we have right now. I think uh-huh. the, <laughs> and that will not, not be funny, especially when, um, when those decisions come from people who think they are on the, side of the queers um Hmm. i think the easiest way and i think also the uh, philosophically best way would be um in german i like to use the uh, word of person as a person Mm -hmm. um because person always means on the level of the uh, symbolic and then Mm -hmm. i just add through verbs or adjective whatever they are doing because you are not a teacher that is not your whole personality. That's something mm-hmm. you do. You teach, so you're a teaching person. I think it's way more accurate, and it doesn't uh, lead to crazy uh, reductionism when you take mm-hmm. literal. Interesting. That one reminds me of like um, uh, debates about whether we should say person with disabilities or a disabled person. Uh, yeah, you, I, kind of I, I, I actually uh, learned a job uh, in this uh, field and uh, when i was learning the um the head teacher came into our room and said okay if anyone says that someone is a disabled person you can leave now i don't want to have you here uh hmm. just leave <laughs> so and he was really angry Interesting. Uh, but as far as uh, i understand there's a really open debate about this like which, yeah, but, uh, which way well, of putting it actually is better uh, but mm-hmm. uh, isn't that one of the big problems that we have now that if you are not really inside of the topic, 
everything mm-hmm. seems like a open debate. For example, a lot of liberals who aren't really concerned with the topic say that that there is an open debate between whether or not non-binary people exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, well, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know which of them are actually open debates, right? Yeah. So, for that example, is, yeah, if, if you want to take it to the extreme, um, yeah, let's imagine that it's 90-30, we are in Germany, uh, you are a liberal, and because I'm German, it's easier for me to play. I'm a Nazi. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I would I never can't... assume, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'd come to you and say, wow, the Jews, they're stealing all the girls. Uh, and let's imagine that someone third joined, someone from the academy who, who mm-hmm. just goes matter of fact at things and says, oh, wait, let's take a look at this claim and count how many Jews are dating German girls. You know, some of them do, but some of them don't. So the claim was exaggerated, but the Nazi was actually right. No, that's not how you engage in this topic. Uh, uh-huh. The facts aren't important. The most important part is the ideology behind it. Why would it mm-hmm. matter? Isn't it isn't it normal? Isn't it good if some do- Jews were dating some German women? Isn't that how reality works? People dating people. You don't so engage in the, the discussion. Focus on no, the you you attack the, the I- premise. You attack the ideology, and that's the problem. You can't discuss with a different mm-hmm. ideology on that level because as soon as you try to discuss with the ideology, you're accepting it as a part of the discourse. And I think that's a that's something um, I'm also of the opinion that there shouldn't be absolute free speech. There are some topics mm-hmm. that shouldn't be discussed. For example, and uh, I'll give a content warning now, uh, content warning rape. Uh, we shouldn't have to discuss every day if it's okay to rape your sister. So maybe mm. we agree today that it isn't okay, but maybe tomorrow will be different. No, it's clearly not okay to non-consensually rape someone. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be discussed. And there are some basics that just uh, should be on this level. Now, what mm-hmm. we choose to be on this level is something that we could discuss. Mm-hmm. Which is tricky but, then, because you have to discuss the things to yeah. discuss which yeah, yeah, on that yeah. level. But it's right, it's so. always tricky when it comes to intersubjective uh, topics. So that's I guess I also given. When, when it comes to those kinds of claims, I feel like they're very field dependent. Like if you're in a classroom talking about sexual violence, then there's a conversation, a different conversation to be had than um, you know out. Sure, in the, the world context or is always like important. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but no, I mean, I think there, I think there's a lot to sort of what you're saying here. I wanted to. Um, before we run out of time, though, I realize we're running short. I, I think that you had uh, you mentioned that you had taken all of this material and brought it together to, to create something that the internet loves very much, which is a, which is a political compass. Um, do you want to say a little bit about sort of how you reinterpret political compass based on um, this kind of debate around the the law of yeah. identity? So I I would reduce it to four people. Uh, okay, because that maybe makes it a bit easier. Uh, there are too many people talking about the law of identity. So I'd say the um, authoritarian right-wing person would be obviously Carl Schmitt. The mm-hmm. uh, the uh, right-wing libertarian would be Ayn Rand. The mm-hmm. left-wing libertarian would be Deleuze, because for him, difference is above identity. And the uh, left-wing author- authoritarian would be uh, Jacques Lacan, because through Hegel, uh, he... Um, aberrates the difference between identity and difference. For Hegel, 
um, identity is always self-difference. Hmm. I feel like I don't know nearly enough about any of these people to necessarily disagree <laughs> with you, but uh, I'd be curious yeah. to see maybe the people, people on Twitter. Will. Out. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly know some people who might listen who might have something to say about those different uh, interpretations. So I, hopefully, people will find it about it endlessly, which is always entertaining to me. Yeah. Um, to me too. So okay. <laughs> Yeah, one final question. What yeah. would you recommend for folks who aren't great with academic writing but want to learn more about this subject? I know at some point, you obviously, like you have yeah, to yeah. just deal with the rest of the writing some, but are there any other like useful entry points that you can recommend? Yeah, I think there are a couple of podcasts out there, and I like to recommend po podcasts for people who start engaging in topics because it's cheap mm -hmm. and we you can... It do it while you're, I don't know, doing your uh, chores or doing sports or whatever. So mm -hmm. when you want to engage a bit with uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis, I'd recommend the Why Theory podcast. And when you want to look more into Deleuze and uh, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, I'd recommend Bodies Without Organs and the Acid Horizon podcast. And Great. if they are too um, easy for you, just uh, go and read the uh, primary sources. <laughs> <laughs> right. That shouldn't be a problem. Um, yeah, that's great. And of course, I'll always plug um, Left of Phil uh, yeah, sure. for sure, doing sure, sure. lots of great work in this area. Um, so I really appreciate this. And we'll, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes so that po folks can can find them easily. Um, but yeah, this is great. So I'm going to wrap it up there because I unfortunately now have to torture your identity. So, yeah, it's not really a torture. It's something that I enjoy. As we do with almost it. all torture. Yes, right. That's like, <laughs> why, why else would we do it, right? Uh, yeah. Okay, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things, and you are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? You don't get to hedge. You don't get to talk about becoming. You don't get to, <laughs> you know, whatever Hegelian dialectic stuff. Just real or not real, okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. So to get us first started, is anything real? Um, I have a question there, just for my understanding. Is anything put in quotation marks or not? No, it is not. Okay, then yes. Okay, all right, so let's find out what is real. Okay, is the external world real or not real? Uh, real. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Not real. Genders? Not real. Races? Not real. Species? Not real. Morality? Real. Very real. Rights? Mm, interesting. Um, rights. Not real. Knowledge? Uh, not real. God or gods? Real. I say, I say real. Even though I'm an atheist. Do you really? All right. Society? Not real. Money? Not real. Oh, wait, wait. Money is real. Oh, money is real? Okay. Yeah. Numbers? Mm, debatable. <laughs> I say not real. Okay. Fictional characters? 
Real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Very real. Chairs. Not real. Sandwiches. Not real. Science. Not real. Natural laws. Mm, not real. Beauty. Real. Love. Very real. Causality. Not real. And finally, time. Uh, real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Um, real. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume you prepped for this ahead of time. You were training. No, no, your, actually not. Your real or not real lab. No, you just went, went on the cuff no. on that one? Yeah, yeah. It, it would uh, destroy the whole joke if I would prefer, uh, prepare for that, so. That's that's good. I respect your honor there. Now I have to, of course, I have to ask an atheist who says that God or gods is real. <laughs> do you want to unpack that in the short time that you have here? Um, no. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a good answer. All right. Yeah, sure. Um, all right. Well, Corvus, do you want to let folks know where they can find your podcast? Yeah, sure. So you you can find me on Twitter at mm-hmm. at Corvus Corax PC. And you can find the podcast, I think, almost wherever you can hear podcasts uh, under the name Corvus Corax Podcast. Okay, great. But well, it's in German, so I don't know if you will able, be able to understand. So, <laughs> Okay, fair up. enough. Right, good good, good note there, except for my episode, which was not obviously yeah, in German. True. Um, so you can check out that one at least. <laughs> All right, well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for yeah. chatting up the identity with me. Thank you, too. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, CampQuest.org, 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 Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Court O, Cormat uh, Orkman on Twitch, Lauren Shielding, and all of the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Creepy Void Eyes, Big Easy Blasphemy, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, every time you think about it, you are the void, and the void is you.